I first came to Wilmore in the fall of 1999 as a college student, and it's weird to me to think that I've been now in and out of Wilmore, uh, mostly in Wilmore, for um, about 25 years, and um, it's, it's just a weird thought. Um, I do have three Asbury degrees on my wall, uh, one from across the street, two from here, MDiv, and a doctor of ministry, and I've learned a lot of things about ministry from here, but also in just ministry and pastoring. I've learned about how to visit and sit with people, how to conduct funerals, how to perform weddings, what faithfulness looks like and feels like, what disappointment feels like. I've witnessed generosity of people's energy and gifts and time um, and their finances in the church. I've also been on the receiving end of a parishioner withdrawing the church from their estate. That is something you don't learn in seminary. So if you're going to be a pastor, buckle up. <laughs> There's one thing I thought that I really would have mastered by now, especially since it's the one thing I probably do most often, the one thing I probably spend the most time on, and of course, it's preaching. I had preaching classes. I've read books on preaching. I continue to read books on preaching. I like to read books of sermons for edification, but also to learn how other people do it. I've read blogs, I've listened to podcasts of how other people do their sermon prep, right? The best practices um, that are supposed to apply to everybody. And while I do have my own method, my way of reading and studying and note-taking and writing, I do not at all feel like a master. And maybe that's how it's supposed to be. The truth of preaching, at least in my experience, is that the grunt work is absolutely important. The reading, the note-taking, the studying, all the content, the ideas, the theology, the Greek or the Hebrew, the historical context, the differing interpretations, the ministry context, all of that is grunt work, and all of it is important. But all of that is information, and it must be somehow brought together, synthesized, and then submitted to the Holy Spirit. And all that information, for me at least, it swirls inside my head, sometimes for days at a time, until a single thought or an idea makes it all make sense. It's like this light bulb moment, you know, like in the cartoons and the light bulb goes off above your head. Or it's like an aha. Oh, there it is. That's what I've been looking for. Or what we might even call an epiphany. As has already been mentioned several times, we are in the season after the epiphany. Epiphany the day was Saturday, January 6th. And now until Ash Wednesday, the church is in the season of celebrating the manifestation of Christ. The lectionary readings for each Sunday in the season after the Epiphany are all passages about how Christ is revealed to those around him, beginning with the baptism of our Lord, which was this past Sunday, and then ending on the other end with the Transfiguration, which is the Sunday before Ash Wednesday. These two events always bracket the season after the Epiphany. In her book, Epiphany, by Fleming Rutledge, which I brought just so you can see what it looks like, she states that Epiphanies are events of revelation not available to human beings without an act of God. I'm going to repeat that. Epiphanies are events of revelation not available to human beings without an act of God. Now this definition does two things. First, it establishes that an epiphany is a revelation, and what's implied is a divine revelation, something about who God is and what God has done that is revealed. And the second thing is that epiphanies are impossible without God. 
Epiphanies are not good ideas or clever human schemes or even funny stories for a sermon. They are the actions of a God who longs to reveal God's self to humanity for the purpose of reestablishing relationship. So while the baptism of Jesus and the transfiguration are major epiphany events that bracket this season in the, in the Gospels, Scripture is actually filled with epiphanies, like the story from our passage today. What we have in Acts 10 is a great example of what I think Dr. Dondrell and Dr. Bauer would call an intercalation. Put on your IBS hat. One story inserted into another story so that both those stories can be told at the same time. The first story is about a man named Cornelius. We are introduced to Cornelius at the, be at the beginning of chapter 10. He's a Roman centurion, which means that he works for the local Roman authorities in Caesarea as a commanding officer. We are also told that he and his whole family were devout and God-fearing people, that he gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. Luke, who wrote Acts, states these things matter-of-factly. But we should pause just for a moment to appreciate what's really going on here. So far, the book of Acts is about the disciples who received the Holy Spirit and are now spreading the good news of Jesus throughout Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and beyond. Most of the stories have been about Jews realizing that Jesus is the fulfillment of the covenant God made with Abraham. So where did Cornelius come from? Has anyone been to Caesarea yet? Maybe. We don't have a record of it. How is it that someone outside the apostles' influence is considered God-fearing, gives to the poor, and prays? Just the basic facts about Cornelius challenge our assumptions about how God is at work. And this is proven when we read that an angel of God comes to him, affirms his faithfulness, and then tells him to send for Peter. Okay, we know Peter. Now maybe the story will make sense. But a Roman centurion having an encounter with an angel and being told to send for one of the apostles, this is not normal. It should make us sit up and pay attention. That's the first story. Second story, well, it's about Peter. At the end of chapter 9, Peter had just finished some traveling where he healed a man and was paralyzed in Lydda. And a woman named Tapitha in Joppa. He stayed in Joppa for a while with a man named Simon, who was a tanner. In chapter 10, we read that Peter's going to the roof of the house to pray while the meal is being prepared. And during this time of prayer, he fell into a trance and he had a vision. This is what it says in Acts 10, 11 through 16. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheep being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times. And immediately the sheep was taken back to heaven. Now, if you or I had this vision, we might just attribute it to hunger. After all, the meal is being prepared nearby. He's probably smelling the food. It's, you know, it's a hunger hallucination, right? But the vision is oddly specific. The animals presented on the sheet are the exact animals Peter is instructed not to eat as a Jew. These are the forbidden animals, the ones listed when the law was given all those years ago. Peter's had many faults in his day, but he is now one of the leaders of the early church, the Jesus way, and he is a faithful apostle. And his mind and heart 
his faithfulness includes continuing the habits of clean eating and who he eats with. The sheet of food is a temptation, something to be held at bay, something to be resisted. A desire of the flesh, Paul might say. So he replies, surely not, Lord. Yet the voice in the vision says, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. And this happens three times. Why is it that Peter never learns anything the first time? I mean, think about it. Jesus predicted his death three times. Peter always kind of bucking at it. Peter denied Jesus three times. Peter asked, Jesus asked Peter if he loves him three times. And now the sheet of unclean food is offered three times. That's the second story. In the first story, we have someone we don't expect being visited by an angel, a God-fearing, generous, devout centurion. We see that God is at work in this centurion's life. In the second story, we have someone we know, Peter, one of the leaders of the early church who's been faithfully engaged in the work of Jesus, preaching and healing across the country. God is at work in and through him as well, and he too has an encounter with the messenger of God through a vision. Two completely different stories, two very different people, and then they converge. While Peter's pondering his vision, the men sent by Cornelius show up. It's helpful to remember right now that the Jesus way, this new movement of faith, is not well received by the governing authorities, to put it mildly. The Jewish establishment and the Roman authorities were actively seeking out the apostles and persecuting them because they were disrupting the status quo. Those in power do not like change or disruptions. If it's not broke, don't fix it, they would say. If the way things are is good for me, then any disruption must be snuffed out if I'm to maintain my power, my position, my authority. So to be summoned by a Roman centurion would not be welcomed by one of the followers of Jesus. In fact, it would be downright terrifying. But the Holy Spirit speaks to Peter and says, these men are looking for you. Do not hesitate. Go with them, for I have sent them. And so off they go. It takes more than a day to get to Cornelius' house along the way. It seems that Peter has some time to think about his vision and about his present circumstances. It's all beginning maybe to make sense. When he arrives at Cornelius' house, the first thing he says is, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with Gentiles or visit them. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. He doesn't recount the whole story, but he does testify that God is now doing a new thing. His presence among them is proof of that. And then it's Cornelius' turn. He also testifies by sharing with Peter the story about the angel. All he knows is that he was supposed to send for Peter, and so now they're ready to receive what the Lord can say through him. So Peter begins to preach. Of course he does. He's a preacher. He testifies again about how God has revealed to him that there is no favoritism, but God accepts people from every nation who fear him and do what is right. He then tells them about Jesus. It seems Cornelius has maybe some knowledge of the events around Jesus, but Peter testifies about them in the way that only Peter can, because he was there. He saw it all. He gives the first-hand account to all who are listening and says that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And while Peter is still speaking, the Holy Spirit comes upon all who are hearing him and they begin to show signs of being filled with the Spirit. And at this, Peter says, surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water 
So the entire household is baptized in the name of Jesus. Baptism is the convergence of stories, isn't it? The first story is God's story. God's story is the creation of the heavens and the earth and all that is in them and on the earth. God's story is one of goodness and beauty that God wishes to share with all of creation. God's story is about a love so deep and so wide that God cannot help but share this love with all people and draw people to himself through this love. The second story is our story. God created human beings in God's own image so that we would represent God within creation. The way we live on earth through our relationships with one another, our relationship with creation and the earth, our work, our play, our worship, everything, it's meant to be a reflection of God. Yet we often think we know better than God. The power of sin and death at work in the world means our relationships are more about our needs. Our use of the earth is more about our comfort. Our work is more about our ego. And our play is more about escaping the hardships of life. And our worship is about making ourselves feel better. In baptism, our stories and God's story converge. Baptism is an outward sign of an inward reality. We are being transformed by the work of God in our life to once again reflect God's own image and represent him faithfully in the world. Since the very beginning of the Jesus movement, people have been baptized in water as a way to identify with Jesus' death, his plunge into darkness, and his resurrection, rising to walk in newness of life. It is important for Cornelius and his household to be baptized, not as a way to celebrate what they now believe, but to mark what God has done and is doing. I grew up in a Baptist church, same Baptist church that my dad grew up in. It was right over the hill from my house, and so when I say right over the hill, it means that when I walked to church as a kid, which I did pretty often, to get to church, I would walk through my backyard and then through my grandfather's backyard, and then through my great uncle's backyard, and then through my second cousin's front yard, and then cross the street. And I was at church. I was baptized in this church when I was six years old, by immersion, of course. I sang in the children's choir, sang in the youth choir, played handbells, I did all the things. I was at church all the time. I learned the stories of Jesus in that church. But I also learned other things, that over time, I came to associate with my faith in how church is supposed to be. I learned that Jesus loved me, this I know, but I also learned to wear a tie every Sunday. I had to. I learned that God is creator of heaven and earth, but I also learned hymns are the better way to worship. I learned the books of the Bible. I'll take anyone on in a Bible drill. But I also learned that only men could be ushers, preach, or be ordained. You see, while I was learning the tenets of the Christian faith, I was also learning practices and preferences that were more cultural, not grounded in who God is and what God has done in Jesus Christ. When my wife Corey and I were dating, she was not afraid to challenge some of these cultural understandings of faith that I had. We had extensive conversations, extensive, 
about the nature of worship, what constitutes church, how and what one wears to church, and the role of women in the church. Corey was raised Methodist. She already had a theology that supported the ordination of women. And I cannot tell you the number of times we talked about this. It's really a wonder she married me. <laughs> It'll be 20 years this year. I read books, I studied scripture, and yet I still struggled. Then one day, I was ruminating on it again because Corey had told me that a dear friend of ours, a woman, was called to ministry to be a pastor. I knew her, I deeply respected her. I knew that she loved Jesus. And there was no doubt in my mind that she could be a pastor. And then I heard the Holy Spirit say to me, why would you limit what God can do? Suddenly all those things that I had made barriers weren't really barriers anymore. I began to see that my belief about the role of women in the church was more about perpetuating a cultural understanding of the roles of men and women rather than about the gifts of the Spirit, which are freely given. It wasn't very dramatic. I, I wouldn't really call it an event. But it was not someplace I could arrive at my own. It was an epiphany. It was a revelation made possible by an act of God. The stories of Cornelius and Peter come together to show that God is at work in different places, at different times, through different people. It's the same God, the one God, who brings them together to reveal God's glory and God's story, a revelation that they would not have been able to see on their own. Cornelius' faith is incomplete because the fullness of the good news of Jesus has not been delivered. Peter's faith is incomplete because he is still associating faith with non-essential cultural practices. And then there's an event that reveals God to them in a way that was not possible on their own. Now their stories are epiphany stories. And this season after the epiphany, I invite you to be open to God's epiphanies. As you come to the table today, perhaps you will want to dip your finger in the baptismal font and remember your baptism. Not the actual event, because maybe some of you don't even remember the actual event. But what you're, what you're remembering is what God has done and is doing in your life. As you receive the bread and the cup, know that God continues to work in us and through us to reveal God's self to us and to the whole world. That work is not yet done. Ask God to make this a season of epiphanies. Glory to God. Amen.